Hello, everybody. Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help you win at the game of business and marketing so you thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. My name is Adam Homey. I am your host. I am honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. Please be sure to follow us on social networks like LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook. Also check us out on your various favorite syndication networks such as iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Blog Talk Radio, and more. We have made it so easy and so convenient for you to download and enjoy the Business Creators Radio Show. Stop by our website, www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com, and explore our entire archive going back nearly five and a half years of a variety of topics covering a breadth and depth of issues relevant to business creators today. So what we're going to do here for the next hour or so is we are going to discuss how building a high-performance culture can be easy. This is one of my favorite topics. I promise you a lot of fun today. This one is going to be exciting. This is something that I deal with in my own book, Groundhog Day is an Event, Not a Business Strategy. It's one of our recurring themes, especially the chapter on avoiding the ripple effect. And to share with us today on this topic, we have Jeffrey Davidson of LeadingGreatTeams.com. Now, let me just tell you a little bit about Jeffrey. And before I dive in, grab onto the handrail, because Jeffrey Davidson is an engaging, thought-provoking thought leader who sometimes gets so excited that you think he forgot to breathe. Jeffrey's been exploring the boundaries of world-class teams for over 20 years, and he'll probably tell us a little bit more about that in just a moment. As a recognized expert in strengthening leaders and building teams, he has worked with hundreds of teams, taught thousands, and consulted with multiple Fortune 100 corporations. As a dynamic presenter, Jeffrey speaks to conferences across the United States and Canada. Audiences love his interactive, high-energy talks, because they include humor and real-life stories of success and his many brushes with failure. Again, a man after my own heart for anybody who's read my book, Groundhog Day is an Event, Not a Business Strategy. A playful fellow, Jeffrey's goal is simple. He wants you to be outstanding, and he wants your team to be even better. So, Jeffrey, come on in. The weather's fine. Oh, and I am so glad to be here, Adam. Woo! You know, this is going to be a great ride today. Oh, I'm feeling it. But before we take that ride, what we like to do here at Business Creators Radio is just take a quick step back. And we ran off your very official and fun bio, but what we'd like to know is a little bit more about Jeffrey the Man. So tell us a little bit about your journey and what's brought you to where you are today, serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. Well, you know, my journey started off when I was young. I was a teenager, and I'm reading like Prince. Um, the Prince by Machiavelli, you know, studying what right. leadership is. And I go to college, and I'm like the leader in five groups at a time, and I'm I'm co-teaching a class with the dean of students on leadership, and I think I've got it all down. Um, I'm, you know, quickly rising the ranks in the Navy Reserve, and uh, I am in my – I'm like 32, and I'm president of a small sales company, you know, we're doing seven to ten million, $10 million dollars a year in sales. Um, I'm excited. I think I've got it all figured out. Until I realized I'm spending more time hiding in my office, because even though I've read the books, I've taught the books, 
I don't actually know what to do. Um, right. And I kind of got scared. And so our parent company decided to roll up my company into itself. Um, they said, do you have any boxes so you can pack up and hit the hit the streets? And I went into consulting because I'm like, you know what? I love leadership, but I don't know how to do it. And I spent a number of years consulting. And finally, a client said, hey, Jeffrey, we want you to build this team of analysts. I'm like, sure, I can do this. And I eventually became the manager, the director. I was leading two different teams, 20-plus people. And those people, my team, taught me how to be a good leader. And I realized the best things I've done in my life professionally um, were all centered around great groups of people who really got a lot done, who really developed a strong bond together. So I spent a number of years trying to figure out how to turn these lessons I learned the hard way after <laughs> just sucking at it um, and how to share it. And that's my passion. I just love to help people on teams get better. I love to help leaders get out of their team's way. Um, I love what they can accomplish when they're working all together. Yeah. I think that's absolutely great. And, you know, I think a lot of our listeners, including myself, have found themselves in that situation where it's like, you know, we've read about it, we understand it, and, oh, shoot, now we got to do it. Now what? <laughs> and yeah. some, some coaches call that imposter syndrome. Some call it by different names. And it's just a matter to me that it's a line. You've got to find your way across. And it's not really that big a step to take when you're looking at it hindsight in 2020. But, oh, when you're staring at that precipice, it's a you are big so right. leap. It is. And as business creators, we have all these ideas, and we need to get other people on board to help them come to life, for them to reach their potential. But doing that and learning how to trust those people and to get them all aligned doing the same stuff together so that this this business can reach its potential, you're right. Looking back at it, when you've crossed the line, it wasn't a big a deal. But when you're walking up to that line, it's a cliff, not a line. So when somebody finds himself at that line, let's just touch on this for a moment before we get to the main topic here. What is your advice when they're looking down at that line? And even if they know, once they cross it and look back retrospectively, they're going to find it really wasn't that big of a jump at all. It was barely a step. But when they're looking down and they're seeing that and they know that they are crossing into something that is really maybe scary in a moment because all change is scary, even good scary, what guidance or what should they think about or what could be ringing in their mind as they look down and see that line and need to cross it? Um, what I focus on is a couple things. I, I think there's a two-part answer to that. The first is I say, what do you want out of that future? And the future is almost always I want my people really to be working together and satisfying our customers. I mean, that's a really common answer. If, even if I don't use that word, just those themes. So right. I have them focus on that end vision because I see that it's entirely possible. And the second thing I say is you, we just need to make small tweaks. And the truth is I would never recommend doing a wholesale change of your whole business model of all your communication strategy, of all your training, of blah, 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 all in one week. No, I say try one thing this week. Try one thing this month. 
and then get a little used to it. Okay, what are you going to do next month? So we're just worried about one small step because that line looks like a chasm. It looks like some great big deep pit that you can't get out of. But if I say, let's try one thing, they're like, oh, I can do that. That's simple. In fact, give me two. Because let's, yeah. I want us to take tiny steps to get there. And that's the way to make sure that you understand the change, that you make the change, you can embed it, and then move forward from there. Yeah, this, I think this has to do not only with doing, dealing with business, but also some of the things we deal with in our lives. And I think that there are some correlations. Just look at what you do in your life. For example, people who know that I'm vegan will ask me, well, how did you do that? And, and, and wouldn't you just love to have a rack of ribs with a cheeseburger on the side? And isn't that hard? No. And it wasn't even hard to make the change because I decided that I was going to make the change. And even though the reasons I decided to make the change had at least partially to do with ethical concerns, I recognized I wanted to be a permanent change. And just to go mm -hmm. cold turkey mm -hmm. on it or to focus on what you're leaving behind wouldn't work. So I set a goal. It would take me seven weeks to get there. And every week I would move one day closer to full vegetarianism. So, uh, in other words, removing animal products one day of the week. Uh, I actually got it done two weeks ahead of schedule, and the reason I got there, I think, is because through that process, I wasn't focused on, oh, this is going to be the last ever New York strip steak. This is my last steak and burger. No more loaded <laughs> potato for me. I didn't think of it that way. I immediately dove into what I was doing that extra day every week that I was moving towards it being all seven days. I was discovering new recipes. I was discovering new places to hang out. I was discovering all the adventures that lay ahead of me. So, you know, I don't remember when my last New York strip steak was. I don't remember when my last rack of ribs was. I don't remember when my last bacon burger was because I wasn't even focused on it. I was just focused on taking the steps to get there. And I was a realist knowing that if I went cold turkey – that my physiology would rebel against it, and before you know it, I'd be gorging out and feeling really bad about myself for having failed, among other things. But when I gave my physiology the chance to adjust with me, then it was actually a fairly simple process. I, I mean, I've, uh, I've been on this path for over eight years now. February 14th was actually my target date, and I hit that two weeks early, so we're well over eight years at this point. And, no, I don't think about a... Uh, a bacon burger. I occasionally will go to TGI Fridays where they sell the Beyond Meat Burger, and uh, that's about the only veggie burger that I can stomach. It's actually pretty good. But outside that, I just don't think about that stuff. I think about uh, stuff that I enjoy. So I love that example. It really is true. And you can find that example out in the world. You know, in physics, it's inertia. You know, that a body in motion is going to keep on going unless some force stops it. Or if something's right. already stopped, it's not going to start unless there's some force that pushes it. Um, and in plants, it's called homeostasis, you know, where basically the plant is going to do what it wants to do. In humans, we call this stubbornness too often. Um, but yeah. the truth is, it gets back to your initial point. Change is hard. So I'm not saying we don't want to make a big change, but I'm saying understand the value of that change and then take it step by step. And you're right. Sometimes you're going to get there early. You know, you reached your change two weeks early. Why? Because you were making steps. You were having a good time. You weren't forcing it. You were letting it come to you. 
other things, if it were taking you an extra week, would that have killed you? I don't think so. No, no not at all. So, so I, the same is true for all of those business creators that we love to help, which is how do we help them get from where they are to where they want to go? And that comes from a couple things. Understanding that, that you can have more impact and have a brighter impact, a brighter future with bigger impact. Um, and having a plan to get there little by little. Just keep on working it. Absolutely. So in a second, we're going to get into building a high-performance culture. But just so that we define our terms, and I want to hear it from your expert perspective, Jeffrey, uh, tell us how you would define a low-performance culture. Ooh. Oh. Oh. I'm glad I'm not asked that very often because it just, it just brings me down. Um, a low-performance culture is one where the leadership is overwhelmed and frustrated and alone because they think they've got to pick up every piece, every ball, and things are falling all the time. It's a constant firefight mode with no sign of relief in the future. And uh, it doesn't make a difference if it's small projects, big projects, customers are upset, vendors who aren't doing what you need, um, employees that just aren't aligned that you can't count on. Um, that for me is low performance. And it, the leaders feel that way and the employees are frustrated and feeling the same thing, that their efforts don't make a difference. Right. Oh, change think, the topic, man. Yeah. This is bringing me down. <laughs> All right. Okay. I just wanted to do it quickly just to define our terms because you know what they say, you cannot appreciate the view from the peak of the mountain unless you know what, it, what it's like looking up from the valley. You are very right. And the truth is so, that there's too many people who are living that frustration, and they don't understand how to get better, and they don't even understand how they can find the time to get better because they're too busy fighting those fires and dealing with the frustrations. You know, before we get into your question, here's something I, I bring up, actually. I actually – repeat this chapter segment twice inside my book, Groundhog Day is an Event, Not a Business Strategy, because I think it's so important. And I urge people to look at what they're doing in their culture, in their organizations, in their companies, the way they manage their day, and ask yourself this question over and over again. Do we need to be doing this? Do we have to? And then you look at me and look deeper. Is who's, what is impacted if we just don't do it at all? What is impacted if we uh, you know, don't do it at all? Uh, are, will our customers be impacted? Will it actually slow us down? Will it gain us time? Will it lose us time? So look at it very analytically and dispassionately, but ask yourself the question, what if I just didn't do this? And what's amazing, when we've worked through this with some of our coaching and consulting clients, the two things have emerged. They discovered that many of those policies they thought were so important were nothing more than temporary over excuse me permanent overreactions to small temporary issues in many cases because somebody from management had to show that they were doing something about it and we also discovered that once you got some of that miscellaneous and non-impactful stuff out of the way it created space in the mind for new innovations Oh, there's no doubt. There's no doubt that there's lots of reasons why these things go awry. Um, one of the things I find for organizations, another one of those things that just kind of gets in the way, is that a leader, the uh, founder, the CEO, an executive, 
will say, what would happen if we did this? And next thing you know, um, it's a whole company policy. Uh, Bob Sutton yeah. tells a story about how an executive went out to one of his retail stores, um, and they didn't know who he was. You know, He just goes to the mall, goes into the store, and he gets bad customer service. So he comes and he complains. He was just giving a little vent. Well, next thing yeah. you know, they're spending $2 million a year on a training program. And when the guy finally figures out, they're like, wait, wait, this is because of my comment two and a half years ago? I would have never spent the money like this. <laughs> it was a bad investment. Yeah, Why? I mean, I mean yeah, because he I made some comments off the cuff. I know. And when I think about that, you know what came to mind is that executive just happened to catch what possibly could have been a great employee on a really bad day. It could have been exactly. nothing more than that. And, and goodness knows, I've been in service to people through my ventures for 16 years, and before that, I dealt with customers, clients, stakeholders, all the way from when I had my part-time job when I was 16 years old. And you think I never had a bad day and failed to clear the bar? I mean, oh, we totally. all do. But that, that, that doesn't mean we need to spend $2.5 million fixing it. Sometimes it's just as simple as saying, whoa there, whoa there, whoa there. You, you see what's going on here? Just take a breather. It's all good. Yes. Well, you know, and I think that this really, you know, I'm going to springboard off of something you said in your book about how, like, you, you don't just recommit to doing a better job. It, uh, that, that, that whole concept just oh, right. makes me cringe. So, yeah, yeah, it's a great book, of course. Um, and, and I want you to know that, um, you know, what we need to do is find ways to just give tiny bits of um, I, I hate to use the F word, but I'm going to say feedback. Um, let's give them some guidance <laughs> about how to have a positive impact. Let's give them some guidance right. on um, where they're going right and encourage them to do the right stuff. Instead of blowing money, making bad decisions, or not acknowledging that we're all human and we all have a bad day. Ugh. Right. And I'm thinking more about that executive, and, um, and I'm seeing that uh, there might have been something in the culture where people were so focused on trying to please that executive that just because he did a, a mystery shopper thing and it wasn't an A-plus experience, that they're thinking, let's read his mind and let's race to be the ones that solve the problem. And what they missed is there wasn't actually a problem. He was just given some feedback. The most that probably needed to be done is his assistant or somebody three levels down the org chart calls up that store and says, Hey, just wanted to let you know, um, Jeffrey was in your store the other day, and uh, he just happened to mention that a couple things weren't exactly as they need to be. So in your next team meeting, you could just mention that. That'd be great. You know, that is a wonderful, low-impact way to show that we're paying attention and we want you to be on your best, which is much more effective than more um, training programs or posters. So often I see people will talk to me about like, well, do we need a vision statement? Do we need a value statement? Do we need a mission statement? And I'm like, if you're going to live it, great. But if it's just a poster on the wall behind a receptionist, that's called corporate propaganda. And we don't need any more propaganda in our company. Yeah. And, and you know, the thing is, is many bosses will find a way to let you know that they know what you're doing and they're actually counting on you. See, here's what I, I love to do. I love in my free time, uh, I, or actually I shouldn't call it free time, I should call it um, other areas of my time, to study history and how things happen in the way they are. And I really have a big focus on reading people's autobiographies. 
regardless of who they are, because I like to see how real people dealt with real situations. And I'm reminded of a story our former pre, uh, former Vice President Dick Cheney told of way back in the day when he was working for Donald Rumsfeld. I can't remember if it was when Rumsfeld was Ford's chief of staff and Cheney was the deputy or somewhere in that general time frame. And Cheney and the department secretary would had this little collaboration going because Rumsfeld had a billion ideas, and he would write them down on little Post-it notes. And then he would hand the Post-it notes to his secretary, and she felt overwhelmed. So she went to Cheney and asked what to do about this. And he said, look, here's what we're going to do. Some of these are actually things we need to act upon, and some of it's just Don having an idea. So what we're going to do is we're going to sort these between the stuff that we just kind of file under Don's ideas versus the stuff that actually needs to be followed up on. And one day, Rumsfeld called them both into his office, and he had all these Post-it notes all over his desk. And it was the Don's Ideas Post-it notes. And he said, guys, I know what you're doing. And that was it. The point of, the point of that was he was acknowledging <laughs> their role in helping him be more effective. He wasn't criticizing them. He wasn't condemning them. He wasn't asking them for feedback on how to improve the process. He said, guys, I know what you're doing. Because he recognized that he needed that help to sort through what was really important. You know, this is a subtle thing, and I don't usually get to it unless I've worked with the company for a long time. But, um, you know, there's an old article 20, 30 years ago in the Harvard Business Review about how you need to manage your boss. And yeah. what I'd like to teach leaders, if, if I'm doing a lot of coaching, I'll get to the point is you need to help your people manage you. In other words, if you like to get a long report but with a short executive summary, tell them, this is my favorite way to get information. If, if you want PowerPoint slides, tell them. If you hate them, tell them. <laughs> Whatever it is, that, how you like to right. consume information, make decisions, tell your people so they can work with you better. Because that will only speed up the process for them and for you. Sure. Sure. And, and you've also heard the principle, and I've actually had to coach clients on this sometimes, when it was, particularly when it was early in a relationship, and I didn't know all their likes and dislikes and their expectations and their no-go zones and things like that. Um, I didn't expect them to train me and explain every step of it. I mean, stuff they knew off the top of their head they could tell me during the orientation or in the questionnaire. But I uh -huh. knew that there were certain things they wouldn't think of, and I was delivering a bunch of things for one client, and uh, it would take a long time, and the client would just get back to me with, no, I don't like that. And then I pushed back and said, well, you know, you guys just keep giving me things until I like it. I said, uh, actually, that's not quite how it works. If you, whether you like what I'm doing or you think it's good but it needs this adjustment or it's absolutely off base, you got to tell me why, because the sooner we get through that process, the sooner I'll be able to see things through your eyes, and you'll like everything I do. Exactly. Uh, I was I was coaching someone a couple weeks ago, um, a young woman with huge potential, and she's going to be working working with the executive in charge of sales, national company, and she's going to be his proxy when he's out on the road. And I said, when you make a decision. I want you to go and say, here's how I think the boss, Curtis, is going to decide, and here's why right. I think he's going to decide this. And then when he makes a decision, if you're right, just do a 15, 30-second check on it. But if you're wrong, I want you to spend two to five minutes to find out why his thinking was different than yours. 
because your job is to understand that so you can be a good proxy. And then I coached him and said, by the way, at her best, she's only going to get 80 to 90% correct. You've got to have some grace for the other 10 or 20% because she's never going to be you. You're a different person. Right. Yeah, that's very that's very true. And what I think what we've done so far, just for our listeners' benefit, is over the past 25 minutes or so, we've just kind of laid some groundwork with some storytelling examples of how some of this cultural stuff and communication stuff works in the real world. So what I'd like to do now is sort of dive in and let's talk about a high-performance culture. Now that we've gotten the low-performance stuff out of the way and we both know what we hate so that we can focus on what we like. <laughs> See how I circle back? Yes. So I love that. If I love were, that. Thank if you. Were, if you were jumping in and taking it on, what is the first thing you need to do to build a high-performance culture? The first thing I want to know is how does your organization make meaning? And what I mean by that is, what do you do and how does it make the world better? So let's imagine that you have a company where your people paint houses, inside, outside, attics, basements, bedrooms, the whole thing. How, how do you make meaning? Because it's not just putting paint on the wall. Every other painter in town does that. Is your goal right. that when a customer walks in the room, they're just going to smile um, because they love that color? Or maybe they're going to think this is the best experience ever because your people were always neat and clean. They even put little um, paper booties over their shoes so they didn't track in anything. Whatever it is, how do you see yourself giving value to your customers? What kind of meaning are you out there making for people? And understanding that, that is the first thing I want you to know for your organization because then you can use that as a filter for everything else you're doing. Right. I think that's, that's so, so important. And the next thing is, you know, we understand, and we've already shared through some of these examples here, the importance of getting people to collaborate. So in your experience having done this work and doing this work, what are some of the steps that you take to get people to collaborate, and what emerges to show that this is an important process? Oh, thanks for asking. When I want people to collaborate, the first thing I want as a leader to say is, what kind of outcome are you looking for? And I want to really define that so we can make sure that this outcome is actually related to that whole meaning statement we've already talked about. Because too often, we have an outcome that's got nothing to do with the meaning statement, and then people are confused. Why am I doing this? Uh, so first, is we get alignment, and then we communicate that alignment to the people. And then I want to know from the leader, if they get that outcome in seven steps instead of ten, is that okay? In other words, is it more important to follow every step of the process, or is it more important to get the right outcome, whether it's seven steps or 12 steps? Wow. Because once we get that defined, now we're letting people know how much we trust them. And we need to communicate this outcome is super important. And if you can do it in seven, great. And if you need to do two extra steps, great. Just go for this outcome. And here's your guidelines I want you to work within. Here's my guidance on how to do that. And if you come up with a better way, share it, because these outcomes are going to help us get to that meaning. It's going to help us get to those delighted customers who want to come back and refer people to us. So it's that yeah, alignment, think, it's that communication, and then it's that guidance, those guardrails. I love that. 
I love that. And that kind of goes back to the question I urge people to ask is what would actually happen if we didn't do this at all? That's what I heard. That's part of what I heard out of that. So you have exactly. a 12 step process that somebody defined, and now we're going to ask the question, can we get it done in seven? Because again, maybe some of those steps were inserted because of an, of a permanent overreaction to a temporary molehill. Yes. Yes. And there's so many times that that'll happen. You know, I told you I spent some time in the Navy Reserves, and I've been on a base where they weren't allowed to wear ball caps. Why? Because one time, one guy didn't salute properly, and he was wearing a ball cap. So the commanding officer said, you know what? It's the ball cap's problem. If they wear ball caps, they don't have the right respect. No ball caps for 3,000 people. Uh -huh. <laughs> I'm not really certain that was the right answer. Um, it was I don't overreaction think <laughs> to a molehill. Yeah. If anything, we lost respect there. So you're right. Let's look at these steps. But you know what? Maybe this 12-step process, there's seven good steps and five bad steps, but we still need some. We just need to change some. But, again, how do we get the right outcome instead of just following a process blindly? We're in total agreement there. I think so. I think so very much so. I mean, it just. And I think it comes down to the same thing, which is, uh, like when I hear the phrase, that's how we've always done it, oh, this this is what part of got me labeled unemployable. Is I would say, oh, that's oh that's cool. That's how you've always done it. And somehow in despite of that, somehow in spite of that, we're still here. Yeah, yeah. I, I can see why. It, once you see the bigger picture, someone saying that's enough to make you cringe and become unemployable. I agree. Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. here's – I, I want to go a little bit further. So once we have this stuff, once the leader has said, you know, here's our outcome and here's how it relies to our meaning, and then here's how much I trust you on doing the right process to get there, and those are important. But then too often the employees of an organization don't have the right support and training. In other words, when they were onboarded, they weren't put with the best person and a good training manual and told how to use the tools. They were thrown with whoever was free that day, and they didn't get enough time with that person, and that person already had a job besides onboarding them. So they kind of learned in a slipshod manner, here's the tools, here's the steps, here's how we get things done. And then we wonder why these new employees aren't doing great. And six months later, that person who's not doing great is training your new new employee. So oh, making sure that your people have been trained and coached on how to use the tools. What are the steps? What are our procedures? What are our goals? If we have a problem, who do we take them to? How do we have a conversation? In other words, how do we get stuff done? How do we work together? You've got to be, this part of great culture is people working together and getting stuff done. And if you don't tell people that, if you don't give them some guardrails around, here's good ways to get it done, here's bad ways, you don't know what you're going to get. And because you don't know, you're going to get the wrong stuff all the time. you got to invest yeah. early to get great returns later. Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's very true. And also, as I said, I like to look at history, and I, sometimes you have to study your history on things like this. It reminds me of the, it reminds me of the woman who – used to cut the ends off her roast before she put it in the pan. And her and her and her husband and her husband asked her, Why do you cut the ends off your roast? And she said, Well, 
it's uh, it, it's uh, it helps to cook better. It gets the juices in. It makes for a better roast. My mom told me that, and the husband wasn't buying it, so he went to his mother-in-law, and the mother-in-law said, "Well, I cut the ends off because uh, it gets the juices in better. It cooks better, and it makes for a better roast." He still wasn't buying it. Well, her mother was still alive, and uh, he went and found her, and uh, and he asked her, "So what?" You know, your 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 daughter and your granddaughter, my wife, were both saying that they learned from you to cut the ends off the roast because it makes the roast cut better. I'm not cook better. I'm not sure if I buy that. And the and the grandmother-in-law said, "Yeah, I used to cut the ends off the roast because my pan wasn't big enough. I needed it to fit." You know, it's overreactions that just get passed on and on. One of my early consulting jobs was um, trying to help people be more effective. So we studied this team in a call center of 13 people. To do Uh the same process, they had 14 different ways to do it. They had more ways to do it than they had people. But, But here's the thing. The best person on the team could do it in 37 seconds, this one step. Right. The closest person to her was like a minute 20. The average was two minutes, and the worst was three and a half. No one was sharing their tips about how to be more effective. It drives me crazy. And and the thing is, that person who was super effective, she was always busy. So when someone new joined the team, they weren't put with her. They were put with one of the slow people who taught them the wrong way to do it. Oh, goodness gracious. Goodness gracious. Gracious, yeah. I mean, since we're talking about organizational culture and the things that kind of permeate it that we don't even recognize, I remember, uh, you know, in college I had a part-time job working in fast food, and uh, and I was frequently assigned to be the person who did the after-rush maintenance after dinner. It was called post-rush. Uh, it involved a number of things, such as uh, scrubbing off the grills and taking out the garbage, straining the fryers, catching up the dishes, sweeping the back, and things like that. Also, uh, going out to the freezer and bringing in the supplies that were needed. You know. Uh, anything that has to do with getting the place put back together after the dinner rush. Sure, sure. And I and I think and I figured out that we didn't have to take the trash out right away, because here's what would happen. I determined, just based on my eyeballs, that at the same time I was doing the back end post rush, the people who were up on the service line were doing the front line post rush, which basically involved restocking all the condiment stations and all the supplies and the paper goods. And everything else. Yeah. And I figured out that between seven o'clock and seven thirty, that restaurant produced nearly a quarter of its garbage for the day. So here's what I did: at seven o'clock, I got the garbage can tamper and tamped down the, and tamped down the garbage cans, <laughs> so that they would have their half hour or so to get all their stuff thrown away. Then I'd tamp them again, then take them out to the dumpster. And uh, the result of that was is by the time the restaurant closed, two of the garbage cans were still empty. So there were only two that even had anything in them, which also benefited the openers in the morning who came in at 6 o'clock the next morning because food prep in the back generated a lot of garbage. And that way they could continue their prep, and they still weren't dealing with overflowing garbage cans. And so some assistant manager came up with their rule book, uh, or at least they thought it was the rule book, and said, no, the garbage has to go out first. That's what it says. I said, okay, you're holding this book that has rules, and it point out to me, Exactly where it says the exact time the garbage has to go out, and then and then and then I and then I then I told this to the store manager, and he said, "How would you like to close every night? I have to close." 
Like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, and, you know, part and, of and, 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 he, and he liked and he liked it because my process reduced the need to spend hours on staff by almost 45 minutes, and there was always somebody. Uh, working on the front line who wanted to get sent home or at least they could go to a party. Worked for everybody. It did work for everyone. So it's paying attention to some details, but keeping the big picture in mind. In other words, right. how do we define success? Is success following a 97-step process? Or is success making sure the customer is delighted? And that's what we've got to get back to. We've got to make sure that our we are focused on where our meaning is and that that filter drives our our actions and our responses. Not this great big process. I, I've got nothing against checklists. I've got nothing against process. But we've got to pay attention and make sure that those things are aligned with what we need to be doing, not just with some overreaction. Right, exactly. So in the time we have left, and we have about, uh, oh, man, this time is flying. We have just over 20 minutes here. And I do want to give you a moment at the end because I know you have something for our audience. This is something that I'm kind of afraid is going to turn into a gripe fest. So let's try and keep it positive because I've got thoughts on this, and I'll probably interject a couple stories. But here it comes. In fact, I'm even going to do the drum roll on my desk. Here it comes. Jeffrey, Bring it on. How can performance reviews and feedback help my organization? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. So, I I've already said feedback is the new F word, and right. I believe it. And I also believe that if you don't get feedback, you're going to be stuck in the wrong place. So let's let's use a G word. Let's call it guidance or guardrails. How do we give the right guidance or guardrails? And the typical performance review is what happens is you take this employee with high potential and you give them some information, and then you wait a year to give them more information. And because it's been a whole year, you can't remember everything that happened in the first nine and a half, ten, ten and a half months. So you just search your memory for what they've done in the last month and a half, and then you base your next review on that. Now, I want you to imagine, I want you to imagine that you're married. And I want you to think, how would it go if you were to say, Honey, you are doing great. You are the perfect spouse for me, and I love it. I just, I just love how you treat me. Uh, and then you would say, but would you go to the guest room for me for a minute? And then you locked him in the guest room. And then a year later, you pull him out so you could tell him how they're doing. What do you think would happen there? Well, if you're not in prison for kidnapping, yeah, it, they, if, if they're not dead, the truth is, that's going to go horrendous. You don't, you can't do that to people. You can't lock them up. And I got to tell you, not giving regular guidance, not saying good job, not saying attaboy, not saying girl, not saying, ooh, um, I, I think I see what you were trying to do, but that did not work out the way we wanted. Let's talk about that. Um, if you don't do those things for your people on a regular basis, they're going to suffer, and they're not going to know how they're doing. They're not going to know how to help your organization reach its potential. And that's what most people want. If you look at the studies that Gallup is doing on employees and workplaces engagement, more than 70% of the population, and this is across the globe, not just in the U.S., 
want what they're doing to make a difference. We need to be giving regular encouragement and guidance, feedback on how people are doing and how they're succeeding and how they're getting stuff done. I'm not saying a performance review is bad. The problem with performance reviews is that it happens once a year and too often supervisors, managers, directors think that's the only time I need to do it. That is not the only time. If you've got a new employee, you need to do it a couple times a day. You might need to do it a couple times an hour, depending on if they know the job or not. If you've got an employee who's been doing it for a long time, you still need to be saying, this is good. What can you do to make it better? Say, I don't know what you could do to be better, but can I do anything for you to make it it easier for you to do a great job? Ask that question. And have a conversation around how we're doing, how we're reaching our goals, how we're making meaning in the world, however we've defined that success to make sure we're working on the right stuff, and then saying, what process steps are getting in your way? What process steps do you need added? What support are you getting? Is it coming right. often enough? Is it coming from the right place? Are you getting it where you need? What roadblocks can I take out of your way so that you can be not just effective but super effective? That's what these performance conversations should be about. How do we work together to achieve our missions? And if you wait once a year to do this, you are going to just collapse You are going to struggle. You are not going to achieve your potential as a department or as a company. If you're a business creator and you think that you can just get customer feedback once a year, you're not going to last a year. (laughs) No, not even. Oh, okay. I'm going to try to calm down from my rant. I'm I'm certain you've got a Uh follow-up question in there. Oh, I've got a a couple things. Um, One experience is mine, and one experience is a friend of mine. And I'll I'll keep them fairly brief, but I think you'll get the point. First one is, I had a supervisor many, many years ago when I worked in the corporate world who uh, was, you know, he was was actually kind of the mentoring type. Um, He's one of those ones where he's a major pain in the ass to work for, but then you look back, uh, retrospectively, and you recognize how damn lucky you were to have someone like that, especially early on in your career, because you realize how many ways you become more effective because you had the experience and the gift of working for them. You see where I'm going with this? Oh, yeah. Oh, and, part, yeah. And, part of, and part of his strategy was he would also take me into confidence on things, uh, you know, from his, from his drive to, to mentor. And he said, Okay, you know this performance review I'm giving you here? Um, you can score anywhere from a 1 to a 5. And whatever score I give you between 1 to 5, uh, you put a percentage You put a percentage after that, the percentage sign, and that's going to be your raise. Now, I'd like to give you about a 4.6 because based on our first year, I think that's how we're doing here. You've, uh, you've overcome a lot of things. Uh, you've innovated our department. You've really helped me in so many ways I didn't even realize was going to happen when I first hired you. But I've already been told there's only room in the budget for 3%, so I have to find enough things wrong with you to get you to 3%. So take what I have to say <laughs> for what it is and then sign it. That was, that was um, I, did, I, did, I, didn't hold, I didn't hold that against him, but it made me think about the company. And uh, he, probably sure would get in a lot of, he probably would get in a lot of trouble uh, today, if he found if his supervisors that he may work for now found out that he said that to me all those years ago. Now, here's another friend of mine. I'm sure you've heard this story enough times. 
where they go into their annual performance review. And uh, this is somebody who felt that they had a relationship with their supervisor where there was, you know, feedback to use the F word, for lack of a better word. And, um, and they were the type who regularly checked in with their supervisor to say, hey, this, is, this, is this what you're looking for? Um, have I delivered on all the points and things like that? And this person just got bombarded with every single little freaking thing that they, I mean, it was like they were thinking, wow, have I, have I actually been showing up here? Have I been doing anything right? And their supervisor is bringing up these things that happened like nine months ago that the average person wouldn't have even noticed. And, um, and their point was, uh, okay, well, do you think I would have been more effective in this role had you clued me in on at least a few of these things as we went along? And the supervisor said, well, I'm telling you now, it's your performance review. And you should have known all that stuff. Really? You know, and, and this is why there's a movement to get rid of performance reviews. Because yeah. once a year just isn't enough. Um, it, the truth is that if they're working with you at any level, it is your job as a leader it's your job as a business owner. It is your job as the manager supervisor to be letting people knowing how they're doing so that they know if they're too close to the guardrails, so that they know if they're going in the right direction or the wrong direction. And uh, I teach this all the time um, to, to leaders, and I say that there's two questions that you want to be asking of your people, and that is say, you know, my intentions were good. I was trying to do a good job here. Is there anything I should build upon? Anything where I did good but I could get better at? That's the first question. You let them answer it. And then you say the second question is, again, trying to do a good job. Is there any place where I should refocus? You know, I made an attempt but it didn't quite work. I ask leaders to ask these questions first. Ask this question a couple times. Because it shows that you are open for a dialogue. And then, after you've done this once or twice over the course of a week or a month, say to your staff, is it okay if I give you some feedback now? Now, one, you're the boss. They're going to say yes. Two, you've already set the example. So they're going to say yes. And then, here's one of the secret tricks. It's a neuro um, science kind of thing. They have to ask the question. If they say, sure, you can give me feedback, say, okay, ask the question. First say, what should I build upon? And part of this is that your brain is wired so that if someone just comes up and says, can I give you some feedback? You're in a fight, flight, freeze kind of situation. Your uh -huh. brain just seizes up. But if you make them ask that question, what should I build upon? Five words. It's like the brain says, oh, I verbalize the words. What they're going to say is okay. <laughs> so I have – and then you say, here's something you did good, and here's where I think you can build upon to make it better. And then say, now ask the second yeah. question. They'll say, what's the second question? Where should I refocus? Have them repeat it. They say the question and say, well, I saw you do this activity earlier today, and I think you were trying to get this result, but it didn't quite happen. Let's talk about how we can make that better. Or here's what I want you to try next time. Because you've had them verbalize the words, it's come out of their mouth, their brains will respond 
and the F word now becomes something positive. That feedback you need to give them becomes more positive. Because you set the example and then and you showed it was okay for them to talk to you and then you're giving it to them in a conversational tone, believing they've got a good heart, but they're just not executing well enough yet. Yeah. That is the kind of regular performance feedback people need, not once a year, but once a month, once every two weeks, once a week. You know, uh, one of my friends in business uh, uh, does digital marketing type stuff. They were working with a client Mm -hmm. they've been with for a long time. And, like, all of a sudden, their client's attitude just seemed to change. Um, it uh, It seemed like this person could never seem to do anything right, and there was no communication anymore. And then one day, this client out of the blue says to my, to my friend, they say, I need you to do this by 11 a.m. No questions, no feedback. I'm really not happy with you around here anyway. And so that led, so that led to a wow. little conversation on the telephone. That was delivered by email. And this led to a telephone conversation where um, the person, uh, my friend, put their client on the spot and said, well, so tell me about this unhappiness because this is, complete news to me but i'll tell you i'll tell you what's not news to me is that uh, i haven't uh, received any responses to emails from you for a week and a half uh, it's also not news to me that you've asked me to do things and then when i went to do them i found out that somebody else on the team had already done it because you subsequently asked them to do it so uh tell me tell me exactly where the unhappiness is because i don't think this unhappiness just goes one way and so this client who uh themselves or a coach said, you know, would it be okay based on what you just said if I gave you some coaching? And so my friend said, sure, you can give me coaching, but I'm going to give you coaching too, deal? And uh, within about a minute and a half, they mutually agreed to close out the relationship. It just showed that there was such a fundamental communication breakdown there. And I think that both sides were partially responsible for it. I mean, when I really look at it uh, objectively, at the same time, I think that uh, that client uh, may have had different motives, and I think one of the motives were was is that the client uh, wasn't quite making the revenue numbers they were looking for, and mm. my friend my friend doesn't come cheap, and they were looking <laughs> for a way to get some of that stuff done, some of that stuff done less expensively. So the the, the conversation the client could have had with that person is. Uh, you know, we're having a bit of a shortfall in the budget here, and uh, I'm not really sure if we, you fit here right now based on what we need or our needs have evolved. They could have come up with a lot of different ways that could have been value-adding. And another question I think they could have asked is, uh, it, se- you know, it seems that basically where we are as an organization right now that we don't really quite need your level of service. So uh, I... So I, I don't know how dependent you are on my invoice every month, but I need to ask if there's some way that we could ramp this out. You know, what I hear you saying is that sometimes people aren't transparent about what's really going on in the business. And right. people are suffering for it. And I've certainly seen cases for that. I've certainly lived through experiences like that um, where someone decides that I'm getting great results but my salary is too high. And instead, they're like looking and making things up. And I'm like, but that's not what happened. Um, if we could be more honest, I think that they could get more buy-in. But some people are afraid of that. Right. There's no doubt about that. Um, and I think that 
in part, this is my own take on this, and it's just my view, is that I need to be willing to demonstrate that having hard conversations and being honest, even if I don't have the perfect response, even if I don't have the perfect statement, to let other people know that they can do that with me. That I've got to be able yeah. to say, hey, here's the best I can tell you right now. Here's what's going on with me. You know, can you understand? Can you work with me? Or we need yeah. to take a change in direction. And it's my experience when I've been honest like this and when I've worked with the team and I was honest is that, one, they have responded with huge honesty. Two, they have responded with huge effort. Three, if there's a creative solution out there, we can come up with it because we're being honest, transparent, and open and vulnerable with each other. Yeah. But you will never find that creative solution if you start hiding things. And I think that's, I think that's what that client was doing. I think, what they, I think there was a bit of a passive-aggressive thing, maybe even a shame thing, where they didn't want to come out and say that their business wasn't doing as well as they were expecting it to because they were um, uh, because they you know viewed themselves as wanting to be seen as successful and maybe there was some minor uh, minor disagreement that kind of got blown out of proportion in their head I really don't as I said I think both sides were you know for some responsibility for the breakdown and. Um, and I think uh, I think that part of that was they were th- thinking my they could just uh, irritate my friend to the point where they would just quit, and that way they wouldn't have the problem of having to let him go. I think that that might have been part of it, but not the whole thing. And I know that on the back end, that that client actually introduced my you know very quickly introduced my friend to a to a colleague of theirs, who ended up hiring them. So they very quickly replaced that that invoice that my client that my friend was depending upon. So. I think on the back end, they did what they could to make it right, but they kind of allowed the situation to get out of control maybe because they were looking at it from the inside out instead of the outside in. They didn't see it for themselves. You know, and it's true that that could have been what happened. You know, I I often – I coach other coaches, and one of the things I say is you don't know what's in their head until you ask (laughs) because you don't. Right. Um, Sometimes the reason that – that person, their arms are crossed and they've got a grumpy face, isn't they don't like what you're saying. Sometimes they're sitting under a vent and they're tired of the cold air blowing on them. So you've got to know that there's often more than one reason for actions. And I think the very best among us, whether you're an employee, a boss, a business creator, um, a consultant, it's when you start to get these responses is ask. Be willing to ask what's really going on here. Or this seems like an overreaction, or I don't understand this response. Can we talk about it? I like where this conversation started where they said, can we do some coaching for each other? Because it was a chance to be more honest, to find out what's really going on. And maybe it got all twisted up and it didn't work, but at least you made the opportunity or gave the option for people to be transparent. Because that's how you're going to get better, is having transparency and then keep on working at getting better. Right. I think that's very true. And, you know, I think that this is, uh, I mean, we're actually near the top of the hour here, and I think we've covered so much. And I encourage everybody to go back, if you haven't subscribed to us yet, uh, go back and do so so you can re-download this interview and listen to it again, because there are so many things that Jeffrey has shared I'm going to listen to this interview again. You know, this this has been great. I loved our conversation today, and I'm glad we got to share. I'm going to be going back. I'll be making a couple notes on the things you said and I said, because there's some good stuff in here. 
And yeah, everyone, hey, if you haven't, go get the book. Exactly. Yeah. So um, okay. So speaking of so speaking of things, uh, you uh, mentioned to me in the green room that you have a little something for our audience, a little gift for them, for them to go check out. I do. So I've got a website for my company, and it's leadinggreatteams.com. And I've got a, a, a page that's kind of hidden. It's leadinggreatteams.com forward slash more, M-O-R-E. More, yeah. And if you go there, I've got three downloads for you. Um, one is an exercise you can do with your team to learn how people like to work. And that way you can understand each other a little bit better and hopefully figure out a better way to work together. Another is how to determine what the meaning for your organization is. Whether it's a one department, one team, or the whole company, what kind of meaning do you want to be making in the world? And the third is that question I talked about for feedback. What should I build upon and refocus? It's three downloads. They're free. I don't even ask for your email address. Um, you can give it to me. You can you can contact me <laughs> if you want. You can call me. All my contact information is up there. But I just want you to know, you can get these three downloads for free, leadinggreatteams.com slash more. Take them. Get better. And as you're getting better, reach back out to me and have a conversation because I've probably got more ideas about how you can keep on getting better. Yeah, I'm going to have to go check those things out myself. So, again, everybody, that's leadinggreatteams.com forward slash more. Make sure to check out Jeffrey's profile on businesscreatorsradioshow.com where you will have that link and be able to get these three things. I think they're awesome. And uh, I just want to say, Jeffrey Davidson, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an honor and an education. Oh, Adam, it's been an honor for me to talk with your listeners today. This has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for the chance to share. In fact, I don't even notice where the times went. It's been a great time talking to you today. And likewise. And for everybody listening, this is Adam Homie, host of the Business Creators Radio Show. Please just be sure to subscribe to us. Uh, check us out on your favorite social media network. Uh, we're on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, and a bunch of others. And also check us out on your favorite syndication networks. You can find us in places like iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Blog Talk Radio. And every time I look it up myself, I'm amazed how many more networks we find ourselves on. So wherever you are, you can find us. Until next time, have a great day. Take care. <laughs>